And they got their fourth win in 1981 with The Heat Death of the Universe. Yes. Um, <laughs> I've been sitting here going, we're going to have to talk about it. Hello and welcome to the Euro What, episode 168 for the week of September 19th, 2022. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Mike McComb, and I'm joined today by Ben Smith. Hey, Ben. Hey, Mike. This week, we'll be exploring the United Kingdom's history at Eurovision. How's it going, Ben? Uh, pretty good. How are you? Doing all right. It's been interesting doing the research on UK at Eurovision this week. United Kingdom is a kind of tough Google term uh, yes. in recent events. but <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is. Before we get into that, just have a few items to get caught up on. Mostly Eurovision in the wild type stuff. Yeah, although one quick correction from last episode on my end. In the moment, got real excited about Ukraine and had said they had won the televote in 2021. Goa did very well, but they did come second to Italy that year. Thank you to Edmund on Twitter for reaching out and calling that out. The Emmys were this past Monday. Uh, American Song Contest was up for a Creative Arts Emmy for Outstanding Lighting Design and Lighting Direction for a Variety Series, and it lost to the finale of The Voice. Aww. That was their one nomination. They did not get it. Although I did note that Kelly Clarkson was one of the presenters during the night, and she was only announced as the host of the Kelly Clarkson show. I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, it is like what her day-to-day job is. There was enough that was weird about that ceremony without having to add all of the Who credits uh, yes. to, <laughs> <laughs> to her resume. There were some people where they're like, here's this person and that person from a show that you've never heard of. Also, I will not be tricked into watching the Amazon Lord of the Rings series, even if there are people on the Emmys. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not your thing? Just not my thing. Aw. <laughs> Sorry, Ned. We mean no disrespect. So <laughs> The other live thing that was happening on NBC this week was the America's Got Talent finale. Ben, did you watch no. Okay. Yeah, I did not either. <laughs> uh, I, I checked Google. Like, I meant to check the morning after just to find out, like, oh, who won? Or, like, check Twitter that evening. I think it was Wednesday night was the finale. Spoiler on how this story's going. <laughs> but, yeah, it wasn't until I was at the airport flying home Thursday afternoon from a work trip. And I was just like, oh, right. America's Got Talent was a thing. I should probably check to see what happened. Sarah James was in the finale. She did a performance of Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. On a scale of Rita Ora to Kate Bush, mm-hmm. I'd put it maybe Dancing with the Stars house band on a good day. Like it was that kind of, it was, it was again another reality show performance of a song where it's just taking it into an even more minor key and really sucking all of the joy out of any sort of song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was fine, but. It was kind of an expected performance based on how she, like, her previous performances on the show. And it's just like, mm. she did not make it out of the round of 10. Like, I guess they cut to the top five and then top two or something like that. So she did not make that first cut, unfortunately. Just thinking of a Dancing of the Stars cover of Running Up That Hell, given that, given that it's 2022, we are absolutely getting that on the upcoming season, aren't we? 
Yeah, and that's the thing that was so confusing to me. This is a part of like music rights that I absolutely do not understand. S- Stranger Things had to get like special permission from Kate Bush to use that in there. And now it's just free game for any reality show contestant. That seems odd, but I don't know. Like t- Kate Bush is getting a paycheck. That's all I care about. So <laughs> She's having a great time, so I'm having a great time. Congratulations, Sarah James. Every time they showed Simon Cowell, he had that like dollar signs in his eyes look. Uh, So (laughs) I think she's going to be okay. She's going to be okay. Yeah, it's been a quiet week with things happening in the UK right now. Not a lot of movement on hosting news that's probably been delayed a week and a half at least. So last time, Ben went over Ukraine. They're the defending champions. They would be the host country this year if circumstances were different and did a deep dive on that. So this time, I wanted to talk about the United Kingdom's history at Eurovision since they will be the host country this year. Framing this episode has been an interesting challenge. I mean, if I use this approach that you used, Ben, of going through all of their entries, that's not really feasible with the UK since they've only missed the contest twice in the entire contest history. So that would be a lot of ground to cover. Yes. Covering the UK's history while the country is in a state of mourning has the potential to hit some kind of sour notes. So we'll be talking about the more recent history of the UK later this season. But for today, I just wanted to focus on the UK's 20th century history at Eurovision. So up until the year 2000. There is a lot to dive into, and we don't have to cover it all at once. We should be able to breeze through the 1950s portion of this since we've actually already discussed most of the interesting instances from that era this summer. Mm -hmm. The UK didn't participate in 1956. They were going to try to do their own festival of British popular songs rather than join in on the Eurovision thing. They changed their mind and did end up debuting in 1957 with Patricia Bredden's song All. That song held the record for the shortest Eurovision song ever up until 2015, when Finland's entry came in at an even shorter time. In 1958, the BBC was supposed to host Eurovision, but they ran into some labor disputes and ultimately weren't able to participate at all. 56, 58, those were the only times that they weren't able to participate. Netherlands stepped in to host in 1958, and that established a tradition of the previous year's winners hosting the following year's contest. The UK has participated in every contest from 1959 onward, and that gives them the third best attendance record behind Germany and France. So I think that's pretty neat. Yeah. Their 1957 participation, it was a little bit of a dud. They finished seventh in a field of 10. But in 1959, they bounced back and they finished in second place. From 1959 through 1969, the UK finished in the top two eight times. Wow. They knew what they were doing. Two of those instances were wins. The first one happening in 1967 with the song Puppet on a String by Sandy Shaw. So 
Sandy Shaw released her first album in 1964. The second single from that album was a cover of the song There's Always Something There to Remind Me, which reached number one in the UK and also got on the US charts. That song's been covered a number of times. There was a version in the 80s. That's the version that I'm most familiar with. Same. Sandy had a string of hits in the mid-60s, including another number one that was titled Long Live Love. And one of the fun tidbits about that song, Sandy Shaw chose to record that instead of the song It's Not Unusual, which ended up going to some Tom Jones guy. Some Welsh guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that worked out for everybody in the end. The point being, Sandy Shaw was an established pop star when Eurovision came knocking at her door. The thing is, Sandy Shaw didn't really like the song Puppet on a String. Uh, Her persona was much more about the swinging 60s aesthetic, and this one didn't quite match her taste. But she may have been the only one not to like the song, as it had more than twice the points of the runner-up at Eurovision that year. It was a decisive winner. One of her trademarks when performing is to perform barefoot on stage, and that is considered to be the origin of that trope at the contest, it being a good luck charm if a singer is performing barefoot on the Eurovision stage. Her last album came out in 1988, but she has performed intermittently since then. She's also embarked on a career as a psychotherapist, and she opened an arts clinic called Barefoot Therapy, which, I don't know, I I think that's cute. So, (laughs) Branding, we love to see it. Exactly. So they win in 1967. UK hosts Eurovision in London in 1968. They send Cliff Richard with congratulations, which was the country's sixth runner-up finish. In 1969, the UK was part of the infamous four-way tie, and that was thanks to Lulu and her song Boom Bang a Bang. Like Sandy Shaw, Lulu was a bonafide pop star by the time that she headed to Eurovision. Her first hit was a cover of Shout by the Isley Brothers in 1964, and she was only 15 years old when that song came out. After releasing a few more singles with her group The Lovers, uh, spelled L-U-V-V-E-R-S, of course, she co-starred with Sidney Poitier in the film To Sir With Love in 1967. She also performed the title track for the movie, which reached number one on the U.S. singles chart, and it was number one for five weeks. Stereogum described the song as the gangsta's paradise of its era, which, um, sure. Uh, (laughs) I've not seen To Sir With Love, have you? I have not. I have a feeling there's differences in plot there, but I'm guessing if you need to write a five-page compare and contrast paper for like a film studies class, that should be pretty easy to spin up. Yeah, like that that feels that feels in the realm of possibility. Yes. <laughs> anyway, Lulu was selected as the artist, and there was a selection show to pick her song. One of the entries, which was called I Can't Go On, was written by a couple of guys named Elton John and Bernie Toppin. 
That song finished last in the selection, and I'm not sure if we ever heard from either of those guys from, again. I, yeah, who knows? Although I Can't Go On didn't win, Lulu did eventually record a version of that, as did Sandy Shaw. So there's a lot of kind of full circle moments that are happening in the UK Eurovision ecosystem. Now, we've talked about the four-way tie of 1969 in a couple of episodes. We had that one standalone episode a few years back. And this was one of the contests that aired during Eurovision again. So I won't go into too much detail here. There will be links to those episodes in the show notes. But I will say Boom Bang Bang is an earworm, even if it is very, very silly. Yes. Well, and like, it's sort of silly nature pops up within that year. There's a sketch in Monty Python that is riffing on the Eurovision Song Contest and the winner is Bing Tittle Tittle Bong. <laughs> I don't think it's an essential Monty Python sketch. And it, and like a bunch of the surrounding stuff is definitely straight up racist in a way that doesn't play well now. So like maybe don't go back and watch it. But Bing Tittle Tittle Bong is, is great. Excellent. Yes. Uh, and the next line in my notes, prompt Ben to talk about Monty Python. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love to be pandered to, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so since Eurovision, Lulu did the theme for The Man with the Golden Gun, which has the dubious distinction of being the only Bond theme not to chart in the US or the UK. This hasn't stopped Lulu, though. She is someone who is always working. She seems like someone who will say yes to the most random things as long long as it's going to be something that's fun. She's done Strictly Come Dancing. She was a judge on Drag Race UK. She has this really delightful cover of Relight My Fire that she recorded with Take That back in the early to mid-90s. And that one is on my main Spotify list and very rarely skipped. So definitely check that one out. So... (laughs) 1960s, very good decade for the UK at Eurovision. The 70s were also a pretty good decade, uh, though maybe not as strong. There were eight top five finishes. Four of those were runner-up placings, so adding to that silver medal count. Cliff Richard appeared again in 1973. He took third place. And Olivia Newton-John finished fourth in 1974 with Long Live Love. And just to be clear, that's not the same one that Sandy Shaw released a decade earlier. Our next Patreon bonus episode comes out next week, and we will be talking at length about Olivia Newton-John. So if you want to head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash year or what to get in line for that episode, it's a really good conversation. I think you will enjoy it. Moving on through the 70s, the UK also won in 1976 with Save Your Kisses for Me by Brotherhood of Man. I love you, I love you, all the while, with your cute little way, will you promise that you'll say your kisses for me, save all your kisses for me, bye bye baby, bye bye, don't cry. This entry is interesting to me for a number of reasons. First, the group Brotherhood of Man originated as sort of a collective of session singers that formed in 1969. They started out with five singers, released a few songs, didn't quite make it on the charts, and ended up breaking up in 1971. In 1972, the production company that originally threw the group together 
decided, hey, we really want to hang on to the name Brotherhood of Man because it's a good name for a band. So they got a new set of session singers and threw them together to form a new version of the group. This new group, they also had a couple of singles. They didn't have much success in the UK at the time, but they were getting some traction in the rest of Europe. In 1976, the UK changed the way they were doing their selection process, which was called A Song for Europe. Initially, the way they were doing it was they would pick their artist and then have a handful of songs and the public would vote on which song they wanted the artist to sing. So they selected Sandy Shaw and then the public picked which song she would sing. Did the same thing for Lulu. This time, anybody could enter. It's pretty much like most selection processes nowadays. Brotherhood of Man won their selection by just two points. They released Save Your Kisses for Me shortly after that in the kind of in-between time before Eurovision. And the song rocketed up to number one on the UK charts. The song even made it onto the US charts. It peaked at number 27 on the Hot 100, and it reached number one on the Easy Listening chart, which is the right chart for that song to be on, I think. Yes, agreed. (laughs) At Eurovision, the UK opened the 1976 contest, and you would think that would be a disadvantage. It was not a problem at all. This was the second year that the Deux Point system that we're familiar with now was in effect, and Brotherhood of Man won with 164 points. That held the record of highest point total until 1986. It was a huge win. And it still holds the record for highest percentage of points possible. So there were 204 points possible at the 1976 contest. Save Your Kisses for Me got 80.4% of those possible points. Wow. Looking at a more recent reference, Salvador Sobral's entry for 2017, that received only about 77% of the maximum points available, even though it has like over 700 points to its name. I have a feeling it's a record that the UK is probably going to have forever, unless there is some major shakeup of how points are distributed at Eurovision at this point, because there are just too many countries. Like The the pool is too big to uh, have that universal of appeal. Brotherhood of Man, they're still around today, and they're still very much into Eurovision. I found their Facebook page, and their most recent post was an appreciation post for Sam Ryder. Um, So I was like, oh, that's really nice. Uh, I scrolled down a little bit more and found a post that tickled me. So I'm going to send it over to you, Ben. This is a post from May 4th. We are delighted to see a clip of us singing Save Your Kisses for Me included in the trailer for the forthcoming Sex Pistols film, even though they call us boring. Of course, everyone is entitled to their opinion, and we have been called worse than that. We'd like to point out that the 6 million people who kindly bought the record would disagree, including many on this page, to whom we will always be forever grateful. And there's a link to the Daily Mail that I'm glad that this is an image. Yeah. (laughs) But but just like, I don't know what's going on with Louis Partridge, but whatever. Yeah. They're having a great time. I also found their webpage. The webpage was pretty much just a landing page with a link to their Facebook page. They do have a contact form. Unfortunately, they're not able to do autographs anymore. So uh, just a heads up. Uh, Now, the runner-up in the 1976 A Song for Europe contest was the group Coco, who would go on to represent the UK in 1978 with the song The Bad Old Days. The contest had been growing at this point, and this was the first year where 20 countries were competing at Eurovision. This was also the first time the UK found itself outside of the top 10, finishing in 11th place. So, yes, it was The Bad Old Days. 
Despite this hiccup, the UK bounced back at the start of the 80s. They finished third in 1980 with Prima Donna's Love Enough for Two. And they got their fourth win in 1981 with The Heat Death of the Universe. Yes. Um, <laughs> I've been sitting here going, we're going to have to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> It was Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz. This was a group that was formed specifically for Eurovision. After the songwriters uh, Nicola Martin and Andy Hill submitted the song to A Song for Europe. Hill also had another entry in that particular contest. So there was a lot of kind of horse trading going on in terms of who's performing which song. A lot of back and forth just trying to figure out the mechanics of how are these songs going to compete. The skirt-ripping choreography that is what makes this song iconic was part of that original performance, and that was believed to easily secure the win to get the ticket to Eurovision. It turns out that the 1981 contest was rather intense. Ireland won the contest in 1980, so the contest was being held in Dublin, and this was at the time where tensions between the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland were quite high. The contest had about 250 military personnel keeping an eye on things. The UK delegation also had extra security, and there were a couple of bomb threats that happened during the preparations for the contest. It was just not the most fun circumstances, I'm guessing. Yeah. However, the biggest problem that the UK entry had involved the orchestra. Since there was an orchestra, all of the instrumentation was live at the contest. It's not done by backing track. There is a saxophone that is supposed to feature prominently in Making Your Mind Up, but the saxophone's not really an orchestral instrument, so the orchestra was not providing one. (laughs) (laughs) And they did not find out about this until they had touched down in Ireland. Had they known ahead of time, they could have swapped out a backing singer and had a saxophonist on stage, but they just had to do without Although the song scored points from every country, it was not a runaway victory. Switzerland, Germany, and France received several sets of 12 points, and the UK ultimately won with only four points. Even though this is considered quite the iconic performance, it it was a nail-biter of an ending, Mm -hmm. so. But but yeah, just like, is is it a Eurovision montage if we don't see the clip of the skirts getting ripped off? Even though this group was created specifically for Eurovision, they were determined to be successful after the contest. They didn't want to be a Eurovision one-hit wonder. And they managed to do that. They had several albums throughout the 80s and even scored a couple more number one singles on the UK charts. They had a handful of top 20 hits. And the most shocking item that I found in their discography was they had recorded a version of What's Love Got to Do With It that they had to scrap because Tina Turner's version came out first. It was a race to release that song. So, <laughs> Wow. And, like, the more that I think about it, it's like, wow, like, the course of music history could have changed. I watched a Tina Turner documentary on HBO Max, like, sometime in the last year. This did not come up. 
there wasn't like a moment where like yeah we really had to make sure that we beat this british group out with the, with with the, with the comeback single looking at that song's wikipedia page like it was bouncing around like to a number of different artists and yeah like it, it still just boggles the mind to think of somebody else like having this be their song yeah that that, that was just something that I, I i had to sit with it for a minute uh, when i saw that <laughs> The group went through several lineup changes over the decades, but they disbanded completely in 2018. However, three of the original members, Cheryl Baker, Mike Nolan, and Jay Aston, have reunited, and they are now performing as The Fizz. The rest of the 80s, relatively okay. The UK did hit another hiccup in 1987, finishing in 13th place, which was their worst placement at that point. But they closed out the decade with back-to-back second-place finishes. So even more silver hardware for the awards closet. In the 1990s, another really strong decade for the UK. Michael Ball, Sonia, and Imani, they got three more second place finishes for the UK, bringing the country's total of second place finishes up to 15. The UK still holds the record for most runner-up entries. It's now 16 because of Spaceman this year. Don't see that record going away anytime soon. Yeah, like that, that's just an incredible run. In 1996, Gina G's Ooh Ah Just a Little Bit finished in eighth place and was the last Eurovision entry to chart in the United States prior to Arcade cracking the top 40 last year. So pretty sizable gap, you might say. And uh, Ooh Ah Just a Little Bit also received a Grammy nomination and unbeknownst to me at the time was one of my entry points to the contest. I <laughs> I remember hearing that song on the radio and being like, oh, I really like this and had no idea of Eurovision or that it even existed. I think that that had to have been like one of my early entry points as well because like that got thrown on like a bunch of those razor and tie compilation CD things of anything with like roughly that kind of beat. So definitely saw that on like a, a TV ad on like Nickelodeon during the summer at some point. <laughs> yep, like New Eurodance 1998 or like one of those sort of CDs. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good times. Uh, so 1997 was the last time that the UK won Eurovision, and that was thanks to Katrina and the Waves' Love Shine a Light. The song was originally commissioned to be an anthem for the charity group Samaritans. After work was completed on the song, the folks at the charity commented that the song felt like something that could probably win Eurovision, and that planted the bug in the band's ear to submit it to the Great British Song Contest, which was the name of the selection process for Eurovision at that time. The original plan was that the song would be submitted, but performed by somebody else. But the record exec at Katrina and the Waves label, who was ushering along this process, 
was also a Eurovision fan and thought that the group's name recognition would be kind of an extra push to get this song to victory. Everybody who encountered the song really believed that it was something that could win Eurovision. The plan was to embrace the cheesiness and the Eurovision-y-ness of the song, and it worked. During the voting, the song got their first 12 points from Austria, which was the fourth country to give their points that evening. That put the song in the lead. It never lost the lead the rest of the night. The song would get points from every country, and they finished ahead of Ireland, who came in second place, by 70 points. It holds the record for most points scored by a song in the pre-semifinal era. That's a record that is definitely not going away. Unfortunately, with a song like Love Shine a Light that is really outside of the repertoire of Katrina and the Waves, it didn't really allow for much follow-up success, and it kind of put the band in a weird box. Like, it was kind of more of a cabaret city winery type song. And yes. Yeah. That, that is a good classification for that song. And it is not what I think of when I think of Katrina and the Waves. Exactly. They weren't getting the sort of gigs that they wanted to get. And yeah, the group ended up breaking up by the end of 1999. So that's unfortunate. Katrina's still a participant in the Eurovision family. Like we see her pop up at various specials. In 1999, the UK was represented by the group Precious and their song Say It Again. They ended up tying with Belgium for 12th place. So this is the third time that the UK fell out of the top 10. Surely this is just another hiccup and not a sign of trouble ahead. I think that's where we're going to leave things now. Uh, We're going to be heading into the 21st century and everything's going to be okay for the UK when we catch up with them again, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, nobody has talked about that before. No, so. it's probably gonna be fine. <laughs> so yeah, that that's uh, kind of kind of a Cliff's Notes version of what the UK has been up to at Eurovision. Having only three non top ten songs in over forty years of competition, uh, not bad, not bad at all. I guess question for you. How much do you think part of that is is due to various language rules and the UK kind of getting to always use English? Hmm. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. I would not be surprised if that is a major contributing factor because they're the ones that are going to be least impacted by the language rule. If countries are going to sing outside of their native language, it's probably going to be in English where English doesn't have to change. So... Yeah, I, it, it would not surprise me if that is a major contributing factor to their success. Also, looking at the acts they were sending in the 60s and 70s, they were sending established pop stars. Lulu was already famous before Eurovision. Cliff Richard, famous before Eurovision. Sandy Shaw, Olivia Newton-John. These are people who aren't using Eurovision as a launch pad for their careers. It's really just kind of more uh, a pit stop along the way. I would agree with that. That is a lot of second places. And it's not like it's small fields either. Second place in a group of 10 is just as challenging as second place in a group of 25, I would think. I mean, yeah. The lovely part about coming in second is that your song does well, but you are not responsible for running the next year's contest. Mm-hmm. Although, as we discovered with the UK, they've still ended up hosting a lot of times. They also currently hold the record for the most number of times hosting, even though they don't have the most number of wins. 
Exactly. Yeah. I'm hopeful that UK can kind of get their mojo back. I feel like this year was a good shot in the arm for that. Mm -hmm. In recent news, uh, it did sound like they were going to be working with TAP again, which that was a great move this previous year. So hopefully that continues to bear fruit. What I love about those announcements, and this happened when uh, it was BMG that they were partnered with too, the artists that they list as also being on that label as if they were going to be up for consideration where it's like oh it could be Dua Lipa and it's like it's not going to be Dua Lipa it's like oh it could be MIA it's like it's definitely not going to be it's MIA. definitely not be MIA no. <laughs> yeah uh in this year's release uh for TAP they included Lana Del Rey and <laughs> my mind went oh would she do this <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean <laughs> I mean the first thing that came to my mind was she doesn't even go here right right but <laughs> With Katrina and the Waves. I mean, Kat- Katrina's American. Uh, okay. Like she, she didn't move to the UK until she was 16. And that was one of the concerns uh, about the entry. Like, that was what they thought may have been a potential Achilles heel for it. Where it's just like, oh, well, she's not British. Is that going to hurt the song? And it didn't. But they said in interviews, it's like, could you talk more British like and she's like whatever so (laughs) like her attitude about this was really interesting to read about because she realizes that there's a cheesiness about this and that this is not the end-all be-all of music but there's a competitiveness about it's like well yeah I'm like entering this contest and I want to win but like if we come in last place whatever it was something to do like that that seems to be her attitude about it and I think that might be the right attitude oh that's that's the right vibe to go in with like whatever like, it's not the sort of condescending tone that you often get from, like, the British press about it. I think she sets the expectations at the right level. Although she did say, like, people who are really into Eurovision, it's like being really into the Miss Universe pageant. And it's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm in this picture and I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess we're now starting a beef with the Miss Universe fandom. So, um Get hype. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We can do it. We can take it. I think so. I think so. That's going to do it for this episode of the EuroWhat. Thanks for listening. The EuroWhat podcast is hosted by Mike McCone, that's me, and Ben Smith. That's me. You can support the show at patreon.com slash EuroWhat for leaving us a review on your favorite podcast service. Show notes are in the description of this episode and on our website at EuroWhat.com. If you'd like to contact us, we're at EuroWhat on Twitter, or you can email EuroWhatPodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the EuroWhat, we'll be taking a look at the cities competing to host next year's Eurovision Song Contest.